Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to episode three of Still Watching American Crime Story colon Impeachment covering episode two of Still Watching American Crime Story Impeachment. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. Uh, and I'm Vanity Fair's awards and audio editor Katie Rich. Hello, Katie. How are you? I'm delightful, uh, which is a weird way to talk about watching this show, which is sad and disturbing in so many ways, but I'm still delightful. Hello. <laughs> Uh, Katie's here. Richard, uh, it was so funny. Richard was like, should we make... Anyway, uh, have we impeached Richard to the mountains? I don't know. But he's in Telluride and or Toronto at the moment. So uh, he He is not... in the weird uh, transitional area between the mountains of Colorado and uh, the shores of Lake Ontario, which is a a place he gets trapped every year, it seems, uh, for festival season. So uh, we will will be hearing from Richard back in the show soon. But Katie is here, ready, willing, and able to talk about all things Monica, Linda, Susan, Paula, Anne, etc. As I said, we are covering episode two of the series, The President Kiss Me, written by Sarah Burgess, directed by Michael Uppendahl. If you have not watched that episode yet, not that we can really spoil history, but you might want to go check it out before you hear us talk about it. Uh, Something we love to do on this show, of course, is have folks who've worked on the show on. Last week, we had the lovely Annalie Ashford interviewed by our colleague Chris Murphy. This week, the great Judith Light. And I, uh, Katie, I'm so happy Judith Light is here for so many different reasons. But (laughs) chief among them is... The last time we did an American Crime Story for Versace, Judith Light came, was very kindly came on the podcast, and she just gave me one of the best interviews ever. She's just incredible. She's so good on that show. She's so good here. Were you excited when you saw Judith Light roll up to the old American Crime Story, Katie? Oh, I mean, she gets like such a great introduction too. Where I was like, "There's another one with her." I can't. I can't even talk about it. Like, <laughs> she's you're already like, "Who is it gonna be?" And then it's Judith Light. I mean, she was she's been such a treasure her whole career, but I really do feel like she's getting her proper appreciation in the last five years or so. Like Transparent was big for her and these uh, the American Crime Story franchise. Um, and you're just kind of always like like almost like with Sarah Paulson. It's like, how are they going to use her this time? And they really use her this time so well. Excellent. And if you if you check out um, 
Susan Carpenter McMillan, the woman that she's playing. If you check out what her hair, like that's exactly what her hair looked like. Just FYI, if you want to go look at it. Um, anyway, so we will talk all about Susan and Paula and all of that. Um, I also, uh, as, as we like to do on the show, we love to get your feedback, your input into the show. You can always reach us stillwashingpod at gmail.com. We got a couple emails. Um, and I think like we said last week, we're, we're recording a little early. So there might be a little lag in terms of like when we read your emails, when you send them in and when you hear them on the show. So these, uh, what we have here are responses to our preview episode that we recorded. Um, so the first one comes from Judy, who wrote in um, at, at my request that someone write in about um, what they think about Linda Tripp and Sarah Paulson and um, prosthetics and padding and all of that. So Judy wrote in and said, let me first say that I adore Sarah Paulson. In a perfect world, she'd be getting offers for t- fantastic work that will lure her away from the Ryan Murphy universe. She deserves it. And so do we. That said, just because she's tremendous does not mean she's the best for everything. Twice, only in the last year, the divine Sarah Lancashire has been robbed. She was born to play Camilla Parker Bowles, and I'd say the same about Linda Tripp. She's not a small woman and can play pretty much anything and even sing. My only hope is that once her Julia Child hits HBO, a wider audience will finally discover her greatness. Still watching Rocks, Judy. Um, Sarah Lancashire, who I know best for her work on Happy, is a British actress. I know her best for her work on Happy Valley. She is really incredible, and she does have... um, a body type that would be sort of more fitting for um, a Linda Tripp. And I guess that's the, that's part of the question surrounding Sarah Paulson in this is like, what other actresses are not being given opportunities when the field of roles for them are much smaller than the field of roles for someone who looks yeah. like Sarah Paulson. So. Yep. Yeah. I thought that was, a, I, I think Sarah is a really good uh thought and i hadn't i hadn't considered she that. really does look a lot like camilla Parker. yeah i think i think she would have been a really good fit for that um and then we had an email from someone named earl uh who wrote in actually via my website rather than still watching email but i consider it fair game because it's about this podcast um so and it's about politics which i think is interesting it's something we've addressed before on the show but here we go uh, he says, uh, on your first podcast about American crime story impeachment, within a few minutes, Richard said, I paraphrase, some people who may not see things the way we do, and I'm sure most of our audience does. And you, and you, meaning me, Joanna, later confirmed the position of that panel. That was completely unnecessarily marginalizing a whole half of the population. Conservatives enjoy your work, too, and listen to entertainment news and reviews. Your personal political position makes no difference to my enjoyment of your work unless you make it a part of it. I enjoy your unbiased opinions, and it's okay to review media without a political filter. I listen to the rest of the podcast of the Burr under my saddle for no good reason. As a member of the press, we all assume you have a left-leaning perspective. But unlike MSNBC, Fox News, LA Times, New York Times, and the rest, your work, at least what I've read and listened to, has come across as honest, heartfelt, and unbiased. I really like it that way. So this is not the first time that someone has told me to keep my politics out of um, my coverage of things. Um I got a lot during Game of Thrones, actually. Um, <laughs> but oh, the politics of Western right. uh, but, follow us everywhere. But the thing that I would say to Earl um, and to anyone else who's, I, I think, I think it was incorrect to assume that everyone listening would be left leaning. Yeah. That that I agree with. But if there's an implication there that I should keep my personal political beliefs out of a show about the impeachment of a president of the United States, like this show, more than anything I've ever covered you know my at least my political opinions at least are gonna like seep in here i don't know if you had any response to that katie 
Well, I think this show is kind of like it is mired within the partisan politics of the mm-hmm. 90s that got us where we are today. But it's also kind of inviting you to see it from outside of it, like with the passage of time. You know, those of us who might have like found ourselves on like really drawn on one side that or the other uh, can see it a little bit differently. Like I think it's this series makes it possible to see where there was wrongdoing on both sides more so than it might have been possible to do now. And there may be coverage like that of, uh, you know, the Obama administration someday or the Biden administration. So I think kind of knowing your political leanings to go into a story like this and recognizing the places where it might be challenged, I think is it's worth having part of the conversation. It's worth maybe letting people know if they didn't already. Um, so, yeah, I think keeping your personal politics out of something like this is kind of a, beside the point. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to we're going to make this point a couple times in this episode specifically. But, yeah, the conservative point of view, uh, whereas when I was I mean, once again, I was a literal ch- school child uh, when this actually happened. But like I was definitely like sort of unblinkingly all in on on the Democrat side of things. And um, that's not the case. It's so much more complicated than that. Um, but yeah. I will I will do my best going forward um, to not make uh, assumptions about who's listening. I will say that that's that's a yes. fine point. Yeah. And um, and and to that end about going forward, uh, I guess I don't know exactly what to say here, Katie. I um, we have some news about the podcast. Uh, I can't tell you everything fully, but I just want to say that, like, the podcast is, as we've already mentioned, as you've already heard with like some of our colleagues doing interviews that like the podcast is going to look a little different this season. Um, you're not going to hear my voice uh, for the entirety of the season, but you are in such capable hands with Katie and Richard. I can't even tell you and all the rest of the, like everyone in VF is all in on covering the show. We're really excited. We've got a lot of great content and angles for you. Um, so uh, I don't know. What else should I say, Katie? I don't. I want to make it clear that th- this is all good <laughs> and good. positive reasons. You're not being booted no. off of still watching no. by any means. No, no. I would have uh, had you do this. Uh, I would have had you do this for the rest of your life and invite me to be part of it, which is what I've been waiting for for years now. Um, <laughs> so uh, when when the reasons come out, I think everyone will be excited for you as I am and also excited where we get to go with this. Um and we'll 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 explain all like by next week's episode we'll we'll be able to uh, explain it all. It's right? true. It's true. Yes, I, I should have premised. This is not uh, nothing bad has happened. Everything is good. And um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to become like a listener of this podcast. So uh, well, we all consider ourselves lucky that you get to that you feel trust us to take this over for you that you're putting it into our hands when you have so beautifully built and created this show over the last uh five years no holy no not really? quite five years been a while oh, though wow. been some time been a, minute. a lot of shows we watched uh so that's that's all we have to say about that we will have more details for you next week um and next week will be your last still watching and next episode, week will be my so. last still watching episode so uh you i am <laughs> sorry i made you say it because i couldn't say it yes they will i know um, yeah but well we need to we need to make it clear but also it's sad, i will so. be handing over the keys uh and the keys of the but but you know the keys of the email as well so please still keep emailing in still watching pot at gmail.com um yes. your feedback is a big part of why this show is so fun to do i'm claire fallon And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So all of... I can't wait to find out what the password is on that account. (laughs) 
I can't wait to remember what it is. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and uh, and last but not least, I want to talk to you a little bit about where you can watch American Crime Story Impeachment because it's a little complicated and a little and something we're a little unused to in the streaming era. Um, it's my understanding, and and we're gonna get complete clarity on this as soon as we can. But it's my understanding that this is only available. It is not available streaming. In the way that we've become very accustomed to things being available streaming. And that has to do with sort of like leftover deals with other streaming networks and stuff like that. But um, it's my understanding that this is only available on FX and and FX on demand and maybe FX now or something like that. But not on Hulu, which is where we often go for our FX content these days. And um, uh, if I'm wrong about that, please do email us and let me know. Um, but it it raises a question, Katie, something that we've talked about before about the pattern of the way that people watch television these days is that um, they watch – a lot of people wait for a couple weeks <laughs> as, like, buzz buzz around something builds, and then they, like, mm-hmm. binge a few episodes, and then they catch up, and then they walk, watch week to week. And that's just a harder yeah. challenge. Um if if this is not available readily on on streaming platforms uh, for people to catch up, do you have any any thoughts about that? Yeah, it really bums me out. Like, I want, I think this show deserves to be a big part of the conversation. I think it's something that grows as you watch along with it, and hopefully, the show is there for people who do manage to keep up with it um, and can watch it week to week. You know, I think about how I watch The White Lotus, where people have been talking about it, and I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to catch up before the finale airs. I think that's a really common behavior. Um, and I just like I want this show to succeed. And like I don't know if we want to talk about the reviews that have come out, which I think were like to me surprisingly negative, given how we've been re- responding to the show, watching it ahead of time. Um, and it, it feels like it needs all the help it can get. And I w- I wish they had a better app or had could solve this somehow. It feels like some like a time warp that all of a sudden you can't catch up on this show while it's. It airing. does feel like a time warp. And I wonder if FX will do a thing where. They'll do mini marathon. That's something that TV used to do, like mini marathons or something mid season, so that you could catch up or whatever, so you could DVR things. Not even that long ago. Uh, yeah, it's true. I'm talking about ancient, but I was I was thinking about. I was like, well, OJ was only really available, and everyone was like watching it. I think it was Wednesday nights, maybe it was Tuesday nights, but I just remember everyone like watching it. Uh, and and being on Twitter and talking like hashtag OJ and all this sort of stuff like that. And it wasn't that long ago, but it was a long time ago in terms of our viewing habits and how they've changed. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. So I, I hope that people figure out a way to watch it and catch up and watch with us because, and yeah, like what, what was your sp- more specifically your response to the reviews that you saw? I mean, I just feel like people have been like not finding depth in it and like finding the prosthetics distraction in a way that I just didn't. And I don't know that I have a more nuanced response other than like, but no, it's good. You say it's, <laughs> you say it's not good, but I think it's good. Um, but I just feel like there's so much, to this there's so much so many ideas and concepts that the story brings up there is so much value in revising history and i think people have been kind of writing it off as being like we're just going to play act what happened in the past and like revive all these scenes that you're already familiar with um and maybe people just remember this whole story better than i do but i feel like there's so much more to it than that i i want to you know jumping off of that i, I want to bring up something that i had planned for later for our uh, linda section of the of the episode but um, I'm going to bring it up here on this idea of likability. This is a question that came up at TCA, the Television Critics Association panel for the show, where someone in so a journalist asked this question about, like, you know, likability in Linda. And like, basically, was there an impulse to make Linda more likable than you did? Or why did you decide not to make like, why is she so unlikable? 
Likeable is a word that I really hate when talking about characters mm-hmm. because we only use it around female characters. And that really bothers yep. me. Um, and like we talked about last week, Linda Tripp is such a fascinating figure in general and a character in the show because the show is really challenging you to find access points of humanity, of which there are several in this episode, I think, um, to someone who's just, you know, got a lot that is uh, off-putting about her. That's a gentle way to say it, I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, one of one of recent history's most famous villains. Yeah. Like, you know, the, Linda is a... Linda Tripp is a not likable person, kind of, just by the facts that we know. Like, there's... In some ways, that's not controversial to say, but in making that a hang-up about why you should have picked her on television, it, it feels, like, obvious why why you would want to explore someone who's that unlikable and who, who did such a famously terrible thing. Right, and this is the ongoing question that we've had um, of, like, why viewers of Breaking Bad thought Skylar White was worse than Walter White and, like, all this sort of mm, stuff sure. like that, you know, like, the way in which we process women and the way in which, like, men are allowed to be monsters and women aren't and stuff like that so i think this show Mm -hmm. is doing something and this is um if you look at uh sarah burgess head writer of the show and in her interview she talked about how she became like uh interview interview on this podcast she talked about how she became like sort of obsessed with linda tripp and if you look at her theatrical work her, her work in the theater um this is the kind of stuff she does she does um difficult women and by difficult i just mean like really like you know that it's okay that women exist that are not likable and um and that and that they are worthy of our interest and actually very occasionally our sympathy as well um yeah well and linda like she's not walter white she's not tony soprano like she's not charismatic Mm -hmm. or smooth Mm -hmm. or anything like there's so many of these like male villains, and I'm sure there's like female antiheroes that I'm not thinking of who have like fit the bill too. Like you know, Catherine Hanna and Wandavision. Like there's no like, she's annoying, and she she's annoying in a way that reminds you of people who you've known in real life. Like you do not want to work in an office with Linda Tripp. And like there's a line later in the show, like about how she's not gonna have to go in front of a jury, and he's like the a jury would hate this lady, and you're like yeah, we would. But that's also what makes her interesting because it's like she's part of the fabric of our lives and here you're trying to get into the head of somebody who would ordinarily just want to like get away from as fast as possible. It's a great challenge in storytelling. And I think what's interesting and this brings me into like the first section that I would do again, we're going to break this down by character, right? Uh, so we're going to, we're here. We are entering um, the, the Ann Coulter section of, of the show. Anne is very, very, um, she's not super prevalent in this episode. She will have a little bit more to do, but um I loved how Sarah Burgess described Anne and George Conway and these other folks as sort of like this repulsive Greek chorus sort of around the story, sort of commenting on it. But like Anne Coulter is so smooth and mm-hmm. charming and witty and is just so interesting to and I know we talked about this, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, this idea of like the worst person you know makes a good point, but like mm-hmm. um and Coulter, in the meantime, like put out a tweet about like Trump and Biden and all sort of stuff like that, and a whole bunch of Democrats were thrown into a tizzy of like the worst person you know. And Coulter has tweeted something you agree with, you know. And um, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, what do what do you make of her the use of her in this episode? I mean, Kobe Smolders is incredible yeah. again. I, th- I know we said it last week, but she's just doing amazing work in that crazy wig. Um, 
And I think you get like I think what's important in terms of like the Greek course that you're talking about to like understand the right wing energy that went into this whole process, like how Paula Jones gets turned into this avatar or something way bigger than she is. She's a really effective way to capture like not only why people were like frustrated with Bill Clinton, but why it was like fun and animating, like why people got into like wearing, you know, impeach the bitch shirts like Ann Coulter represents that really well, like why people listen to talk radio. Um it's like a party. I mean, yeah, it's like a, a party fueled by outrage. And Ann Coulter, like, wears it all so lightly. And, you know, when she walks into a room, you want to pay attention to what she's saying. And I imagine that's true of the real Ann Coulter. And they capture it so well here. Yeah, this idea when she she calls her colleagues, like, boring, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and And she talks about she makes a distinction between conservatives and Republicans. She's a conservative. We talked a little bit about, like, how the rise of Newt Gingrich was the rise of this, like, uh, partisan politics based on attack of character versus issues. And um, not the first time in history, but like a significant uh, boost in history. And uh, this idea that Ann Coulter is, yeah, it's like it's more fun and entertaining to dredge up the dirt and talk, you know, get make Bill Clinton talk about his penis. Like, that's exactly mm-hmm. what I want to do, you know? And yeah. Uh, and and we as consumers, again, like, of course, that's the dirty scummy. I mean, like, we can pretend that we were above it with Clinton. We weren't. But, like, just look at all the Trump stuff. Like, look at our, I mean, not to tell, you know, trade secrets or whatever, but, like, look at the massive amount of traffic we got on everything Trump at VF dot com and it's not just the it's not the politics it is the politics but it's it was also just all the scandal right it was everyone's like game as game of thrones was waning trump and all that stuff became the like soap opera everyone was watching the trashy Mm -hmm. soap opera everyone was watching and that you know that has its roots here in in the clinton affair yeah and also as i was saying earlier about how this show kind of wants you to reframe your partisan politics like and culture being like, let's get Bill Clinton under oath so he'll lie. Like, you you kind of get the frustration of these people being like, this guy is a liar. Like, Paula Jones is here with a very credible story and he's just lying his way through it and getting away with it. Like, maybe also after the Trump era, we can kind of understand where that frustration is coming from, even if, um, you know, the way that we went about it ruined plenty of lies. Paula Jones is possibly included. It's um, it's this idea of the court of public opinion that, like, Ann Coulter and her ill, uh, maybe not her ill, because not everyone in that room seemed to agree with her, but like the, you know, that they are determined to win. And we'll get to that a bit more when we get to Susan. Um, but I want to switch over to it, you know, Anne walks in having been fired from MSNBC. Let's talk about another member of the media, which is Michael Isakoff, who is a Newsweek, uh, writer. First of all, Katie, what is your memory? I know you were even younger than I was when this was happened, but what was your memory of the like of the position that weekly news magazines, Time and Newsweek, sort of held in terms of br- like imagine them like breaking news? Like, oh, I mean, I yeah, I have no memory of this part of the story of the Clinton impeachment at all. But like, my dad was a very religious Time and Newsweek subscriber. Like, those news magazines were everywhere in my house all of the time. That was where the news came from. Like. Being on the cover of Time was a big deal. Um, and when they show the shot of Michael Iskoff in his desk, and it's not just the Newsweek headquarters, it's Newsweek's D.C. headquarters, and it's this massive <laughs> office. I was like, oh, this is a different time. <laughs> Everything like looks more, way more like All the President's Men yes. than anything that exists today. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of uh, All the President's Men. But yeah, this idea... We're going to get, um, uh, as, as Richard sort of teased um, uh, in an earlier episode, we're going to get... 
the rise of the internet and how fast-breaking news mm-hmm. played a huge part in this story. And and uh, I would say uh, fast-breaking news that does not have to go through the same rigorous um, standard of publishing that Newsweek, at least at the time, no, I would say currently, like has to go through. So, mm-hmm. you know, my question for you, uh, we hope that here at Vanity Fair, we have a rigorous standard of publishing. As an editor, Katie, like wh- what were you thinking when- in the scene where Isakoff is talking to his editor and she's like, basically, you don't have it. You don't have the story. What do, what do you think yeah. about that? I mean, what it means to have the story can vary so differently depending on what you're writing. But when you're getting to something as high level of as like allegations of impropriety against the president, like you need people, to, you need people to go on the record. You need to corroborate their stories from a second person. Like you need to kind of like tie up all the things so that you check in with all the places that might disprove your story. I mean, we've seen stories of like places going to print with stories that turn out to be untrue. Like you have to kind of fact check your way around it to make sure. And with allegations of sexual harassment, I mean, this is something that happened in the Me Too era where Reporters for years were going after the Harvey Weinstein story. And because it's one person in the room with another person and one of them is going to deny it forever, like if it's one person's word against another, how do you back that story up? And, you know, you can read the behind the scenes stories of how those Harvey Weinstein stories came out and how much work they had to do to get people to talk and kind of see why Michael Isikoff's stories kept falling apart. And I did. I love that the editor was just like, I keep defending you and you keep not publishing. We got to put you on something else and like that. I get <laughs> like you have a writer who's like good. And should be doing more, and they're just—they're not publishing, and so you got to put them on something else. I've—I've I've been there many, plenty of times. So it's um, yeah, it's this really interesting. Isakov's a really interesting figure. Um, I've—I've I've gone back and read a bunch of his, like he really was considered an expert in all this. He was at the center of a lot mm-hmm. of this, and if you when you Google certain search terms, Isakov articles come up again and again and again and again. So he really did have his finger on the pulse of what was going on here, and in in the way that like. We talked about, I think, like Dominic Dunn around OJ, like, you know, that there are certain mm-hmm. like there, there become these like reporter figures in a way that, um, you know, happened in the Trump era as well. And so um, Isakoff is is one to watch. This is obviously he's the he's the Maggie Haberman yeah. <laughs> of, uh, of exactly, one, exactly. A great, a great comparison. And so he's one to watch. Uh, we'll see more of him, obviously. Um, let's hop to this like final scene that he has where he comes to visit Linda at work. I was about to say we have to talk yeah. about this before we <laughs> oh, move yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, where he comes to her to talk about uh, Kathleen Milley, who's the character played by Elizabeth Reezer, we met, who, you know, got smooched, got her lipstick smeared, barred her lipstick from Linda. Linda was not very sympathetic. Uh, so, yeah, Katie, um, first of all, uh, I doubt a reporter from Newsweek could just wander into uh, the Pentagon, but let's say that he could. Isn't that how the story goes, though? Like, uh, Isakoff's one of the voices on Slow Burn, and I swear he tells that the story happening basically exactly how you see that. That he's wandered to the death. Okay. Then, yeah, yeah. I don't, or like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure how he pulled it off, but maybe secure. It's pre 9 11, things were different. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I love how this just plays into in Linda's inflated sense of importance mm-hmm. from the beginning. And we saw that in the first episode, too, where she's like, oh, I know what you're here for. You're here because my, and the way she says JCOC is always funny. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, and he's like, no, absolutely not. That's not what I'm here about. And like, I don't know why she throws Kathleen Willing under the bus right away. Like, you know, she's been mad at her, obviously. So maybe she doesn't want to help her. Maybe she's mad that like, it's not a story about her. But the way that she ends it with like, I can't all the president's men like she wants to be deep throat in the parking lot being like, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Like it's it, Linda is living within her own TV movie version of reality. And the fact that it turned out to be as crazy a story as it did is like. 
it lived up exactly with her expectations. But like when she's doing all this, she doesn't know that. And she's just acting way out of proportion to what's going on. Yeah. And it's um that that's another one of those lines where you're like, all right, is that a little much? And then um I have heard Isakov say that that is exactly what she yeah. said at the time. So, yeah. you know, and it totally fits with the, with the personality that she's been established yeah. on the show where like she walks into her office at the Pentagon. She's like, I will be deposed for Whitewater. I need an office. Yeah, right. So she, she, of course, she would like throw off a line that feels like it's from a movie. The, um, I think the Kathleen Millie thing, at, at least the way the show is premising it, is that it's, um, it's as much about her job as anything else, right? And she had that moment at the end of episode one where she was like, she like put a shaky finger in Kathleen's face and was like, "I will get you for this," basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love so that. here, you know. And so it's surprise. It is. I will say this. It is surprising to me that Kathleen Millie's like, oh, you need someone to corroborate my story. <laughs> Go talk to Linda Tripp, who threatened me the last time I saw her. But um, but all this happened. And this is how Linda Tripp meets Michael Isikoff. And that's a significant relationship going forward. So we will come back. To our intrepid Newsweek journalist, Michael Isikoff. But let's go back uh, now to, once again, the, med- the media has so much to do with this. Let's talk about Susan Carpenter McMillan, who um, yeah, who enters the scene as Paula Jones. What she, um, I watched an interview that she gave at the time um, to Ron Owens, who Californians might remember as like this big uh, sort of talk radio figure. And um she was not allowed to call herself Paula's spokesperson because that's a legal term and it meant she would have to testify. So she, what? yeah, so she called herself an advisor, a friend to Paula, an advisor. We have not, I, I can't remember if we will, but we have not yet seen sort of who puts Susan on Paula's track, right? Um, like if Susan just came up with this idea herself or if she's connected to the sort of other conservatives working behind the scene but um it seems like not because the lawyers are surprised that she's she's rolling mm-hmm. up here and this and the story that she gave ron oh they're they are so surprised oh, yeah. so unpleasant they surprised. are not delighted but um the, the, the story <laughs> that she gave ron owens is that she had met paula jones a couple years previously through mutual friends um i'd like to imagine what event that was that paula jones met susan uh carpenter mcmillan but um took her under the wing and she has this whole like virtuous I'm just here for Paula thing. And then, of course, Judith Light, the way that she's playing her, you know, when she calls her, like, dumb as a rock or just, like, rolls her eyes at her or various things. I mean, there's, it's... Yeah, it's, but she's so nice to her, it's too. Both. Like, I thought yeah. that, that moment of her calling her dumb as a rock, like, you get, like, you know, she's she's not in this just to, like, help this girl. Um, but, you know, she's, like, Paula is so happy to be in her presence. I know. <laughs> I'm rooting for that. I know. Like, when, you know, when she tells Paula she's proud of her the way that she's proud of her own show dogs right um <laughs> and, and paula's like no one's ever uh you know said that like i did well or whatever it's very it's very heartbreaking annalee ashford continues to oh, be incredibly good um so good oh god the line where she um they're like in the lawyer's office where um judith Light is like well they made it legal the supreme court made it oh legal to god. kill babies and paul's like oh my god really yeah. <laughs> Her line reading of that was so good. Oh, um, I love Paula. But the um, it goes back to this question of like, who is allowed to be a victim, right? And so one of the big things that happened around the Paula Jones, uh, all of the Paula Jones discussion is that James Carville was like this big figure who came out just 
like demolishing Paula Jones in the press, calling her trailer trash, like all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. like that, a gold digger, blah, 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 blah. And so Susan uh, Carpenter McMillan is out here trying to turn Paula into the kind of victim um, that people will take seriously with this like makeover. So this is like, this is a, when she's on the, on Ron Owen show, Susan Carpenter McMillan brought up the oj simpson trial she said there's two trials the trial in court and the trial of public opinion and she's here to fight the trial Mm -hmm. of public opinion and we see that in this whole like turning paula you know and this this actually happened of course that like paula got a blowout and paula got new clothes and Mm -hmm. paula got braces and eventually paula gets rhinoplasty like all of that happened um to turn her into someone that people would take more seriously but something that i thought was really interesting when i was investigating or some of the stuff around this um, episode is that there was an um, a Washington Post article because Kathleen Willey, we're not done. We'll hear more from that character, obviously, that person. But like there was a Washington Post article at the time that said like Kathleen Willey's involvement is what turned the public opinion of some women's groups against Clinton because she's the hmm. right kind a victim. If you think about how Elizabeth Reeser is presented, mm-hmm. you know, she works in the White House. She has a husband there, like donors there. Like, you know, she's yeah. educated. She's all this sort of stuff. And Paula is not. And I just think that's an interesting yeah. conversation to have, you know? Yeah. It's uh, really sad the way that it just like essentialized these people who, as far as we know, were just kind of like, you know, what Paula keeps saying over and over again. She's like, he's the one who did something wrong. Like, I'm just trying to like speak my truth. And it's not about that. Um, the there's also the comparison of Anita Hill to Paula Jones, the way in which like the Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas case was so recent in everyone's memory and treated so differently by the left, um, than they treated these women who were talking about Bill Clinton is a condemnation mm-hmm. once again. As you as you said at the top, Katie, of like the left and feminism and like everything that was mm-hmm. going on at the time that like how much you're willing to turn a blind eye to someone um, in order to protect your president. Very interesting. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to mention one <laughs> one little uh, avenue of history that I went down. There's this toss away line in, in the meeting between. Susan Carpenter McMillan and uh, Paula Jones lawyers where they talk about how uh, Richard Bork uh, is going to do some of the like trial because basically they're trying to bring they're bringing this case to Supreme Court to see whether or not they can even sue the president. This is a question, right, that they're bringing to the Supreme Court. So they're trying, you know, figuring out their argument. And they said Richard Bork is going to help them. They're like, at least he can pretend he's on like, you know, at least this way he gets to pretend he was on the Supreme Court or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I did not know who Richard Bork was. Uh, oh, you, oh, Robert Bork. Oh, sorry. Is it? is it Robert Bork? Yes, Robert Bork. Thank you. Okay. So I ignorantly did not know who Robert Bork was. So I had to like look it up. But I did not know that the the phrase Bork to Bork came from a person. So I can't believe you knew the phrase to Bork something, but not <laughs> the story behind it. Because like, that's like not like the most common phrase. <laughs> You know, we all have little holes in uh, in our education. <laughs> anyway, Robert Bork. Sorry, thank you. Uh, yeah, who who was like part of the Saturday Massacre and like all this sort of stuff, and was a uh, one of Reagan's nominees to the Supreme Court, and he was uh, roundly rejected by the Senate. It's this whole big thing that I just 
was not aware of. So uh, that was a big part of the Anita Hill, the Clarence Thomas story about like because it had happened recently enough before the whole Clarence Thomas hearing, and they talked about Robert Bork. I guess I watched the Carrie Washington Anita Hill movie, and that's why Mm, I remember it so well. There you go. I did not. Um, But yeah, it's a it's an an interesting chapter in our history, and that's like the the connective tissue from like Nixon and and that whole scandal up through the Clintons up to trial you know the scandals just like pay forward basically um as we as we go through history so i thought that was like a nice little like toss off moment in the script um <laughs> so much history to be found anything else you want to say about paula and her uh distaste for brie oh god she was so um susan was like just so nice being like it's brie it's, it's fresh <laughs> i mean they I love her like power suit and how happy she is and like her whole like monologue about how her mom made her clothes from the patterns in uh, Lone Oak, Arkansas. I just I want the best for Paula, even though I know it's not gonna, what's going to happen. Right. And how like she was raised so uh, religious and conservative and all this sort of stuff like that. And she found herself in the middle of all of this. Um, the thing that uh, Susan says about <clears throat> you don't have to be a lesbian or an abortionist to believe a woman deserves equal respect to a man um, uh-huh. as she's dressing Paula reminded me a lot of um, Mrs. America, a show that I really loved that not enough people watched. And you should all go watch it right now. And listen to the podcast that we you and Richard did. Sure. Where we talked about to every actress ever living who was on the show. Um, <laughs> but like, that's such an interesting show for this idea of like, uh, because Phyllis Schlafly as played by Kate Blanchett and in real life is, is a woman who's talking about like, is trying to convince people that like her movement is a feminist movement, but she won't use that word. But like, you know, it is interesting that Susan uses the word feminist because it was such a dirty word to the right at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, no, I'm a feminist. Um, I'll just call women abortionists as well. I mean, it's just it's she's a wild, <laughs> wild figure. Um, so, I mean, this this feels like as good a time of any to uh, to go to our conversation with the great Judith Light. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. A little tired. We've been working all week, but I'm very happy to talk to you and very grateful that you were willing to do this on my one day off. Oh, I so appreciate you, you taking your one day off to do this. Um, I I wanted to start, though, by asking you um, what your memory is of living through all of this the first time uh, and if you're perspective on everything has shifted at all since then um my memory of living through it the first time um is of course you know memory doesn't always serve particularly well but i i remember being um shocked by a lot of people's um in, in in politics, their vitriol and their uh, intense desire to go after uh, the Clintons and to, in a way, use Monica as this and and Paula also as this way in um, to to vilify and um, in in ways really take down someone um, and. 
they also, so many of these politicians, had also done the same thing. So I remember thinking that this was a very, um, uh, it, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Right. And that was one of my, one of my, one of my very intense reactions. And I also thought about Monica as a, um, not an innocent, but as another person who was also being vilified. And there seemed to be no neutrality within the system. Uh, and as I think you probably recall, there were several, I believe, senators who um, had to resign right. uh, because they were also having had affairs. And it's like, can we just keep ourselves to ourselves? And um, I thought that um, there was a lot of vindictiveness and cruelty involved in it. And I, I, I thought it was very um, inappropriate and, and um, spoke a lot to our society and our culture. Uh, because I think we, and I said this many times during the time of AIDS, in the early days of AIDS and the vilification of the LGBTQ um, IA plus community, that we are a sex phobic society. And at the same time as we are sex phobic, there is also a sense of titillation with all of this. And so I, I found a lot of that kind of aspect of it uh, uh, very unpleasant. Thinking about how you thought about it then versus any change in the cultural conversation, I think a lot of people, I'll just say this, I think a lot of people, it sounds like at the time you had a really good perspective on Monica, but I think a lot of people have done sort of a reckoning with the way in which they treated both Paula and Monica um, and the other women yes. sort of caught up in this, that, that, uh, you know, post me too, and all this other stuff. And some of the things that Monica has done herself to reclaim this narrative. I think a lot of people are having this big moment of who was I in the nineties that I, that I felt this way. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I think uh, you look at what she's done. She has reclaimed this. And you've, I'm sure you've seen the documentary, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, is features her very prominently in this in this story. And I and that this particular um, reclaiming is that she wanted to be a part of this and wanted to be a producer on impeachment and watch the way she could have gone downhill, lied about it hidden out. And what she did was she told the truth and she stood in her truth and she never tried to um, pretend, cover over. Um, she stood bravely in a light that was being shown on her that could have taken her down again. And she didn't do that. So you watch this um, woman own herself and her choice and what she did, whether she felt it was right or wrong, she owned herself. And there's something very powerful in that. I Something, you know, speaking of women <laughs> owning themselves, something that I think is so fascinating about this woman you're playing, Susan Carpenter McMillan, uh, is that she calls herself a conservative feminist at a time when the word feminist wasn't something that even sort of, uh, you know, women with opinions in the conservative uh, wing of the party 
were calling themselves. It was a dirty word. I remember, you know, Rush Limbaugh and his whole feminazi uh, vibe in the 90s. And so what do you think it was about Susan that made her claim that word in particular? Susan was extremely outspoken. And she knew that what she was saying, because she was so smart and is so smart, was very provocative. And she owned both of those things. We're talking about women who have owned something. And, and to that point, you have to also look at Hillary in this light as well, who owned her choice and stood up for her choice. Mm. And, you know, we, we tend to have opinions about everybody without necessarily looking to ourselves or what we might have done in those circumstances. Same thing with Paula. It was very brave of Paula at that time to to make the choices that she did. And when Susan saw the way that the male-dominated society, the patriarchy, was treating her, that's when Susan swooped in and was making the choice to speak to those two sides of what her purpose was in the world. And she wanted to to stand up in that. So you're talking about what finally came to fruition many years later um, in the way that women are talking about the patriarchy and the way that women are talking about real feminism um, and what it means to be a feminist and how to own your power. So you, And that's what I love about this particular um, rendering of the story. It is about, it is from the women's point of view. And that's what we're beginning to see. And we're beginning to see how um, the dynamics in the culture have changed because women have stood up and and owned themselves in these particular ways. Um, we're seeing something very different. We're having different dialogue about it, like you and I are right now. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting to watch Um, your performance of Susan, because Susan is obviously, yes, someone who is speaking out for Paula, but as we see in the show, is someone who's also manipulating Paula uh, in many ways and um, for, for a a different agenda. And, um, but there's also moments of real concern and pathos there. And I was wondering sort of when you were thinking about holding all those things in Susan, this sort of manipulative condescending side, but also this, genuine occasional flashes of care. Um, how do you think about that blend in this particular character? Well, I mean, it's so interesting. You you know, one of the things I've always said about any character that I play is that you can never be, you have to be your character's best friend. Mm-hmm. You can't judge your character. And in the creation of someone, people are multi-leveled psychologically dynamic in many, many different ways. And I don't, I would never call her manipulative. Some of her behavior approaches that way, looks that way, but that's not where she's coming from. Mm. Um, I don't think she thought, I don't think Susan thought that she was manipulating her. Susan wanted, Susan was also getting 
attention for herself. Yeah. Um, and she saw a way to speak to the dynamic of what was happening with with men in our society. And she has a very interesting backstory and a very interesting history. But you're 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 looking at and, and remember you've got the person who Ryan Murphy is devoted to the way women are perceived. And you can see it in everything that he does and everything that he touches. So you're looking at Ryan in, and his way of, of framing this, of the context that he's using. And also you've got Sarah Burgess and other wonderful writers writing this show. So all of those pieces that you just spoke about are all laid in to the fabric of the character. This is not a three-dimensional woman. It right. could be, but with this team and these people and getting to work with Annalie Ashford and having that kind of dynamic with her, you find those things. You find those things in rehearsal. You've got directors who are directing you um, into places. And it is up to the audience to decide. What we're showing is the ability to give the audience to walk in these people's shoes and to make the choices that they make about these people. So I don't attempt to think about oh, Susan is a manipulative character. I'm doing the actions. I'm being mm. um, from the script, the map that I have, and creating that character. It's. I, I went and watched several videos of Susan's appearances at the time, um, which were <laughs> yeah. fascinating because she's really... So smart, so witty, so funny. Um, I love uh, especially her feud with James Carville. It's just, you know, she's speaking a lot of truth in all of this. Um, I'm wondering when you're approaching okay. a character. Did, yeah. did, did you see the Bill, did you see the Bill Maher one? Yes. He's on Bill Maher. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's got a mouth on her. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, she would say things that were incredibly provocative about sex. I yeah. mean, it's like, Oh, this is a very um, multifaceted, complicated uh, person. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted. No, you but it, I mean, it's great. It's great to have her on Paula's side because James Carville was just running roughshod over her, you know, gloves off. And it's so nice to have someone in Paula's corner and all of this, even if, you know, Susan is also uh, enjoying her time in the spotlight. And I'm just wondering um, when you have a character that has that much raw material for you to look at and work from, what is your process like with that? Is it any different from creating a character uh, whole cloth? Uh, it is different. And you have to be respectful and uh, honor that in a, and be responsible to that. Um, much like when I did the American Crime Story, um, the Marilyn Miglin character mm -hmm. um, for Ryan uh, a couple of years ago, the assassination of Johnny Versace, there, there is a lot of material that you can look at, read, like you're saying, you watch the, um, the videos of her. And uh, so I do a lot of that. When you don't have a character who's uh, in a real-life character, you don't have that. However, the process, I mean, with Susan, there are a lot of articles, you know, lots of stuff in the Washington Post. The... You, I do a lot of research and I do a lot of work on that. I also do the same thing that I do for any character. And that's what I was talking about before. What are their motivations? Mm -hmm. Where do they live? What's, the, what's this map that I'm given by the director, the writer, the producer? Where 
do I fall in the service of this piece of this story? So I do that with every character that I play. Um, and then with this, with the real life characters, you add all the components of the research and that is just really just a different dynamic. I think it's so interesting when we look at these women, um, especially sort of this, the core four, I would say of Paula, Hillary, Monica, Linda, women that have spent so much time in the bright spotlight in this moment, women we feel like we know, we think we know pretty well. Of those four, I feel like Paula is kind of the one that we have the most to discover about. And Annalise's uh, performance is, is so good. And I'm wondering if you and all of this and looking into all of this, into looking into Paula Jones, into watching Annalise's performance, um, did your thoughts or opinions about Paula Jones change? Did you learn anything? What was your process there? I think you're really spot on. Paula is the one we know least about. And um, I think you know that I haven't had an opportunity to watch anything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm down in, in um, Savannah um, making a film. And, and so I haven't um, had the time to, to, to look. I know what her performance was just by being with her. Mm-hmm. And she's an extraordinary uh, artist. And really, a, a, Annalise is just a lovely person. We had a grand time together. So I, I have a sense of what that performance is. It's revelatory, not only in the artistry of the performance, but also in telling us about Paula and letting us know about Paula. I found out a lot about Paula that I actually did not know. And, I, and what's fascinating, not fascinating, but what is intriguing to me is that she began it all. She really was the one that began that curiosity about what Clinton might have been doing. Um, I mean, there were there were other women who would come forward, but this one people really latched onto, and um, there was a real um, sense of. To, I didn't realize how frightened she actually was to do all of this mm. and how brave she was to continue this. And in many ways that she needed to save her reputation with her husband. So there was a lot of her backstory that I didn't know a lot about. Um, and, and that was what was more revealing to me doing the research and doing the work on it this in, in now, as opposed to what I just heard a bit about during the time that it was happening. Yeah. And I mean, it's so interesting because Susan's involvement and particularly as it plays out in the show, uh, she's so heavily involved in this physical makeover for Paula, this sort of turning Paula into a more polished media presentable figure. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what that says about, um, I don't know, the right kind of victim, if that makes any sense, like, uh, Carville felt like he could dismiss her as trailer trash. And part of that had to do with, you know, her curly hair and her teeth and, her, and the way she dressed and stuff like that. And then she gets, um, you know, new haired races, new wardrobe, et cetera. And I think at that point, no, people, no, no oh, sorry, job. Nose, nose job. job. Yeah. Nose job. That's like, right. you know, all of that plays into, I think, um, 
this attempt to turn her into someone that people, even more people would listen to. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that, about like what a woman has to look like in order to be heard on a subject like this. I think we're in a time now where we, as women, we don't have to put up with that. Mm-hmm. That we are who we are. And that when we stand in our truth, wherever we've come from, whatever background we have, however other people may think they know us, they don't. And in our ownership of ourselves, and not listening to what others think we should be, that we take back, we own our own value. And the time is different now. It was different then, and that might have been the thing that Susan felt, I mean, Susan did feel strongly that that was what was needed. It's different now. And the more we recognize how different it is and honor and applaud women for operating from their true self, their authentic self, the better off we'll be as a culture and a society and the more respect that we'll garner. I love that. That's a very hopeful um, view of things. I, w- I, w- I want to hold on to that really, really tightly. Um, my... Good, good. <laughs> I think I, we, all, we, all, we all must. I mean, we, we, yeah. we must. There, there is something. Don't, don't make me be something that you think I should be. This is who I am, mm. and I honor that. And whatever you think about that is none of my business. My last question for you in all of this, because I did love your performance in Versace so much. I thought you were incredible on that show. I loved the way you talked about that show. I just love, I love your work in this franchise, and I'm just wondering. Um, you know, above above and beyond what you have already said about Ryan and Sarah, et cetera, um, what do you view as the value of the American Crime Story franchise? This this look back, uh, sort of approach to a very specific time and place. I believe it to be essential. There are stories that we think we know, mm-hmm. and we don't know the full spectrum of them. And when you have a a visionary like Ryan Murphy uh, and the team of people he has around him um, as his producers, um, Lex Foothold, uh, Brad Simpson, uh, Nina Jacobson, those are people with great vision and great intelligence that bring other aspects of the stories that we think we know. We don't actually really know all of them. Hence, this particular uh, context, framework, a new one for the story of the impeachment, which is the point of view of the women. So when you have a team like that that has this creative ability and new ideas, fresh ideas, bringing more information in new ways, you're educating in an entertaining way, the public about other parts of these stories that have taken place. And as a culture, we are our stories. That is what changes hearts and minds and fills people's lives with something new that they never thought about before. So I am 
as you can tell, a huge fan. <laughs> and I, 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 I like that you pointed out that it's entertaining because I think it is that blend of like, you know, it's like a spoon's full of sugar with the medicine, right? That we are we are having something that is uh, engrossing drama um, in, you know, sometimes even in in the melodrama territory with so much information about our society at the time, who we were at the time, and hopefully where we've come since then. So, yeah. Thank you so much for but all your I'm, work. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if it's a spoonful of sugar. I think it's the... It's the storytelling aspect of what we do in our business. Yeah, and, true. you know, sometimes it, sometimes there's no sugar with it. But if you think, <laughs> that, you know, the, the, entertainment, the entertainment of it um, is a very, very important aspect. You can't lose that um, in, in looking at all of this. I mean, you know, we don't want to be pedantic or didactic. Oh, my God, that would be just so boring. There's, there's an aliveness and an energy within all of these um, yeah. Americans stories that are so um are so needed right now stories are needed right now and it's so delicious yeah i mean i i, I didn't mean to reduce it to say spoonful of sugar i guess i'm just comparing i i love you know you, you talked about the clinton affair that documentary that monica participated in which i thought was incredible i think all of this documentary work has been incredible there at the end of the day there are some people who just don't watch documentaries and so to have this That's right. aspect uh this this take on the story um is is another way to educate folks and i think it's really valuable so thank you again yeah i'm i'm, I'm with you all the way <laughs> all right well thank you so much <laughs> judith i really appreciate it thank you too appreciate it All right. Okay. Katie Rich, that brings us, of course, to, you know, the women of the hour, Monica and Linda. Um, really, Monica's hour. Yeah. Uh, when I rewatched it, I was like, so I was somehow a little bit surprised by how much of the story is like really within her head and how much of it's built around that one monologue she has, which we'll talk about. Um, do, well, do you want to start there or? No, we should, we should go, go in order. Okay. Right? So let's start with this idea that. There is a government shutdown, and that is one of the major dominoes of this whole story where if, you know, uh, Congress and the president hadn't been at loggerheads over the budget, uh, once again, uh, and and shut down the White House, Monica Lewinsky never would have had, and this makes it sound like it's her fault, but I'm not saying that, obviously, but like she never would have had the access to the president that she got. She's working yeah. in close quarters in a stripped down staff in a largely vacant White House because of the government shutdown. And that's how she was able to go from just I fucking the president at public events to actually interacting with him intensely, too. Yeah. Like, I think I had even like not forgotten like how much of it was a, I guess, not entirely one-sided crush, because, like, I think he was, like, clearly flirting back. But, like, as we talked about last week, like, Bill Clinton as a politician is someone who would just, like, lavish attention on anyone he could. So, like, it's unclear how much he was really invested in that flirtation, but she certainly was before she even actually spoke to him. But I do think it's clear, I mean, we can agree that Bill Clinton had many a dalliance, but I do think it's clear that, like, whatever his association with Monica was... Well, I don't know. I I choose to believe that it was like something more 
than some of his other yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, you know? once once they got started, yeah. like, it went on for so long. Yeah. There were all these gifts being exchanged. Like, he called her on the phone. Like, there clearly was a long-term engagement there. Like, you know, far more than Paula Jones. Um, but I just, yeah, her, like, making eyes at him at public events. Like, how much of that was reciprocated by him? It's hard to tell. Right. And there's this really interesting, there's this level of self-awareness in Monica where she's just sort of like, am I? There is and there isn't. Am I a stalker? Or am I, you yeah. know, what is happening Well, here? that's, that's you know, so we see, I'm trying to remember how the episode goes exactly. Like, it starts with a government shutdown, then you flash forward to the future and her talking about their relationship. So you kind of, like, see how the relationship begins just kind of from this objective point of view. And then when she kind of recounts how the whole thing escalated, kind of goes back in time again. And after that, it's her being, like, her thinking that it's over because the election has happened. Yeah. And he has it brought it back to the White House. And she's like, I was so stupid. Like, I can't believe I did that. Um, so it kind of colors the way that the relationship started um, more than if they had just been like, here is what happened in, in exact order. But yeah, it does start with them like locking eyes um, in the hallway and in, in a very prolonged manner. And there's also the other the other moment, you know, I, they're, what they're really trying to do is sell to you what the show is really trying to do is sell to you. This thing that we talked about in a previous episode that that like the magnetism of Bill Clinton and what it means to have the attention of someone as explosively charismatic as Bill Clinton. And I think the most successful version of that in in this episode is not like the meeting in the office, not the hat pin, not the leaves of grass. It's the radio address. When she's sitting uh-huh. in the front row and he's not looking at her and he's not looking at her and he's not looking at her. And then Clive Owen looks direct to camera. And I like I'm mm-hmm. a little like, <gasps> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> he got you. <laughs> Fake Bill Clinton it's got a moment. you. It's a real moment. Uh, and, and you're sort of like, oh, my God. Uh, so I don't know. I'll like overall. How do you feel like Clive, uh, Clive Owen is doing sort of selling this the the charisma and charm of Bill Clinton? I think that's good. And I think that's why you cast Clive Owen, you know, like there are plenty of like better Bill Clinton impersonators out there in the world. But they're so like surface level, like get the voice, get like the punchlines. But he's got the like Clive Owen looked at you and you're like, oh, God. And like, even though Bill Clinton doesn't look like real Clive Owen, he still carries that over underneath all those prosthetics, which is another reason not to go back to the reviews. But like, I feel like talking about the prosthetics is just kind of missing how so much of what's there in that performance it um what what's the clive owen role that you remember being like oh my god for me it's gosford park like when he shows up in gosford park and you're just like Mm. oh my god yeah who (laughs) is that yeah what is he doing um i mean this sounds deranged but children are men like he's obviously (laughs) like very like charismatic and children men not like a movie like about sex appeal um but also this um julia roberts movie that no one ever remembers existed i'm sure you must have seen this oh i've seen it but but most of all i think about duplicity as a movie that you katie rich love defending so uh, yeah (laughs) which i also haven't seen in a really long time so i hope it holds up but uh yeah like that that movie is so based on the like you know, repartee, like city hopping chemistry. I mean, and I think Closer would probably be something other people would bring up. I'm not a huge Closer fan, but, you know, that period in the 2000s, like he had it every time he showed up. In The Born Identity, where he's there for like two seconds, you're like, oh, hello. The croupier? Yeah, but um, anyway, it's... <laughs> I'm not seeing croupier. <laughs> um, so uh, what I think is interesting, and we talked about this earlier, this idea that like they weren't going to show a lot of the like... um. Uh, sex or sexual interaction um, between these two characters. 
um, that that is something they opted not to do in this show. And um, we do see like, you know, some smooching in this episode, but we won't see anything beyond smooching. And um, yeah. not that I need to. Um, but it's interesting, like, you know, the title of the episode is The President Kissed Me. And we have this moment where Monica runs home and tells her mom, Mira Sorvino, who I didn't realize was Mira Sorvino when I first watched. You know, because she's like, oh, yeah. she's like sleepy in bed with no makeup on. It wasn't until she showed up later that I was like, with a wig, when I was like, yeah. oh, Mira Sorvino's here. Um, but, uh, you know, tells her mom who she lives with that the president kissed her. But we don't see that kiss. I think that's a really interesting choice. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is. I mean, and you see it later. You see a, a different kiss later, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a different yeah. kiss. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, you know, they, they talk about how they chose not to show any of the sex. And I think there was an interview that Sarah Burgess did, and I don't think it was with us, about her flashing her thong, um, which was kind of like a famous moment from the Star Report, yeah. I think, and that they really debated keeping it in there. And that Monica was the one who said, no, I, no, go ahead and put it in, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, it was it is an interesting moment. And, and like, it is it is worth talking about the ways in which you know, Monica insisted for a long time that she was not a victim of sexual harassment or sexual assault or anything like that, that she was a willing participant, that she was, you know, the instigator in several instances and stuff like that. And all of that's true. I think she has since I think our understanding has evolved a bit since and I think she has since um, started talking about, <clears throat> I think source to her TED talk, but like uh, in other places talked about, you know, is consent really on the table when the imbalance of power is so enormous yeah. as it was in this case? So it's not that she didn't flash her thong or tell him she had a huge crush on him or something like that. That's all true. But like the the imbalance of power is it just takes all normal understandings of interactions between people. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And I think you, I mean, just the way, I think the way that Bingy Feldstein plays this infatuation, like, I I still have a hard time with, like, this 22-year-old saying, I have a huge crush on you in, like, their first actual conversation. But, like, that was kind of the risky, you know what they say, your brain's not fully developed until you're 25. So, like, you don't, <laughs> you don't really process how risky the thing that is. But I think she plays really well this, like, kind of moony infatuation at an age where, like, she would get off a phone call with the president being like, I just don't know if he's thinking about me. Like, it's such a wild way to think about a relationship an affair but that's the stage of her life that she's in and i think beanie feldstein is just this like talk about likability like she's such a likable screen presence all the time and i think she is the right person to to get that across and that way that she can really nail like hopeful yearning longing whatever but also at the same time play this like am i Am I an idiot? Am I making a huge mistake? I'm thinking about like mm -hmm. the scene where he sort of like hugs her, but then like leans across her and she's sort of pushed out of the way. Oh, so, that's that, yeah, that's the exact recreation of yeah. that famous yeah. clip. The one that we saw forever. Yeah. So it's like you can go watch that happen to like the real Monica Lewinsky, but it's just sort of like yeah. it's a really interesting moment. And the way that she plays it on her face, I think, is is uh, is incredible. Um but also you talk about, like, she's 22. She says she has a huge crush on him. We should talk about Bill Clinton and, like, the characterization of Bill Clinton, which a lot of people have tried to sort of, like, figure out his psychology. But I thought, I think a really key line in this episode is when his secretary, Betty Curry, says, I think he likes gifts more than, like, any <laughs> other adult person. There's something very childlike about Bill Clinton. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Betty's such a good character too. We might we may have talked to talk chance to talk more about her as the show goes on. But uh, I mean, she's uh, Radon Chong. She's doing doing a great job. Fascinating Betty Curry, fascinating woman. But like, uh, you know, the like, uh, what did I want to call it? Enabler in chief, Betty Curry. Um, but the but also who like talk about consent? Like she she has no real choice other than what she's exactly. doing because she works for the rest. Um, but. Uh, I don't know the idea that like the decor in Clinton's White House are these like big framed cork boards of like campaign buttons mm-hmm. um that I just think that that's kind of interesting and I think that um I think that him talking about briefly mentioning his like stepdaddy and like talking about his fondness for cheese, but that whole like I'm a vulnerable, I'm just a guy thing, like that was like really uh-huh. like, and that's a whole tactic of like let me show you my vulnerability. But also he has that really interesting thing that he talks about the election and finding out he was so far ahead of Dole and how mad he was because he wanted a fight because he's a fighter. Like all of that mashed together in this in this person is just um is fascinating. I think so. yeah. He is a he's an interesting person, and it's interesting to see him at this phase in his life as opposed to the Bill Clinton that we know yeah. now, kind of after this whole. Scandal. And by fascinating, I mean, I mean, maybe that makes it sound too admiring. I am like, as I said before, and we'll say again, my feelings are so complicated about Bill Clinton, but like to the point about whether or not to show the sex, uh, because Monica is wearing the famous blue dress when she goes to the radio address. That's. That's yes. the blue dress. And, you, and we'll, we'll see more of yeah. it, as you, as you might remember from history. Yeah, but that is, that's the blue dress, but we don't see what happens to the blue dress. And I don't necessarily want to see what happens to the blue dress. But... No, you know what happens to no, the blue dress. But like, we all... Everybody remembers. Here's, here's, here's what is missing for me. Um, <clears throat> in listening to Slow Burn and watching Clinton Affair and reading some things, there are just some moments of their sexual assignations in the White House that... And, and maybe this is going to make me sound like such a prude that did disturb me. It's not what they would do by themselves in a side office behind the closed doors. It's like when he would take phone calls and be uh-huh. on the phone and doing the office of the president while receiving oral sex from her. And like one, one uh-huh. of the instances is like in a hallway. And once again, I don't mean to sound like a prude, but like that, that to me is the sort of shocking intermingling of the job and and the personal disastrous personal decisions. Do you know what I mean? Uh huh. And that's what made it, that's what made so many people crazy yeah. too. Yeah. Like that, you know, made it seem worthy of impeachment. Which makes me wonder if it'll come up later in this show, which we haven't seen, where the actual impeachment process it, it, begins. Yeah. Like maybe not flashing back to it, but mentioning that that's what happened. Yeah. Um. But it also like you feel so bad for Monica in that situation and like for a character who we like, like and are rooting for and like already feel pretty bad for. Like, I wonder if seeing that actually happen would just be, just feel so dreadful to watch it play out. It is. And it's also, I mean, but it's even awful for me to watch, uh, how young Beanie looks and how old they've made Clive look and like to watch them kiss. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm devastated for her. So yeah. Um, it's like how Linda says she's very maternal and she's worried for Monica. And it's like, me too, Linda. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Linda a bit. So there's a couple conversations with Linda. There's, uh, you know, some cafeteria conversations um, and uh, Linda going over to the apartment to see the inauguration dress and the spreadsheet and all of that that happens. But Oh, the spreadsheet. Some element of the conversation between Linda, you know, because Linda has this story 
that she tells on the Slow Burn podcast about how she was just worried about Monica, right? Mm-hmm. And if that were entirely the case, um, she would not be telling Monica, you're so special to him, that's why you've been exiled from the White House. Uh-huh. She- this, this isn't over. That's like her first response after Monica lays out the whole sort of story. Right. And, and this isn't over feels like I have a vested interest in this going on so that I can get more information and compromising dirt on the president um rather than run to (laughs) run away monica go to portland go to new york go anywhere don't be here uh which is what someone who was really worried about uh monica lewitsky i think would say do you know so yeah as this like you know watching it again and kind of watching linda and how she responds to it like she's obviously like thrilled to hear the details she's responding to it Honestly, probably the way I would, which is being like, oh, my God, tell me everything. Yeah. Like, I need to hear this story. Um, And then you see, I feel like you can see the gears turning in her head, even though she doesn't have a plan yet. Like, she wants to know. She, she like, relishes the proximity to power, the fact that Monica is, like, on the phone with this guy. Like, she wants to be ingratiated into that story, even if I don't think in this episode she has figured out how she's going to use it to take Clinton down yet. Yeah, it's... um. It's not like she has the tapes going already, right? She doesn't. Yeah. She's just sort of like in in fact-finding mode or whatever. Yeah. And and also there are moments when like Linda is a little bit like how I would like I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but like I've definitely had people talk to me obsessively about really ill-advised relationships <laughs> or affairs and like you try to be supportive you try to be supportive and then every so often your exasperation comes through and the person's like i thought you'd be more excited for me or whatever which is what monica says and i'm like yeah this is familiar and i'm sure people have felt that way about me when i've been entangled things but that's like i don't know if men do that but it is such a thing that like women will do where you're like i want to support you in this infatuation but also i don't think it's what you should be I doing. I hope men do that. Men, please write in. <laughs> let us know. Richard, Richard come back next yeah. week. And, still watch, still watching PottyGmail.com. <laughs> um, well, her friend, Monica's friend, who shows up earlier in the yeah. episode, feels uh, a little bit more rational, where it's like, you know this is crazy. Please don't tell anybody. Like, I, I wish that friend had um, had had more of a voice to to keep things from happening the way they did. She also gives us cu- crucial information that this is like um, a kind of relationship that Monica has sought out in the past. Yes. And that this is like yes. something, you know. She has picked the most unavailable man uh, to to, mm-hmm. to be infatuated with this time. Th- that's something that comes up later as the show goes on, because I think that is the question. And then we talked about this last week, like, why did the people involved in this do the things that they did? And I think the show was really mostly explaining why Linda behaved the way that she did. Because Monica, in some ways, it was like, a you know, an infatuation. And we all know that feeling. But I think her pattern of relationships becomes really important in terms of, A, why she pursued the most available unavailable man on the planet and be why she put up with what that relationship looked like for so long yeah um the other thing that i wanted to say about oh the friend is like when she's packing to go to portland for a ter- for a visit you know we, we we learned so much about what monica has given up just so that she can be home just in case the president has called right but like this yep. idea of which we talked about in the premiere of like her almost making like she's packing her bag to go to portland and maybe if she had gone to portland <sighs> Uh, just an hour sooner or whatever and hadn't been there for that phone mm-hmm. call, maybe all of this would have turned out differently. You yeah. Know? Almost know. got out. So let's go to the inauguration. Um, Monica obviously is there. She wears her red red dress, which Clinton... Great dress. She looks amazing. Looks fantastic that Clinton apparently compliments from the stage, etc. But I know you want to talk about the scene where Linda is watching it at home. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. It's this interesting. So you, you know, you're watching Linda watching. You've seen Linda sitting in her chair with her microwave dinner many times. Like this is how she's kind of absorbing the world in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's watching the inauguration and you see Edie Falco pop up again silently. Um, the, the, the tease of Edie Falco in this series continues. Um, and then they're dancing. And at one point, um, Clive Owen as Bill Clinton kind of looks directly into the camera, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and it's Linda who's receiving that gaze, not Monica, mm-hmm. even though we know that Monica is there in person somewhere. And Unforgettable is playing and you see her kind of absorbed in it. And like, I don't I don't totally know what's going on in Linda's head at that moment. Like, it's not like you're you're watching her being like, oh, she hates this guy so much. It's like she's being seduced by him. But I guess it's that she's that he has her attention so much, maybe, is what we're supposed to take away from it. That, like, she is as absorbed in the Clinton drama as anyone else, even though she kind of hates him, too. Maybe. I was I was wondering if, because we get earlier in the episode, we get her talking about her divorce, about how she sort of, like, closed up shop. Closed for uh, business. Yeah, closed for business um, is done. Uh, by the way, Linda tried to get married again after all of this. Um, so she was not. Oh, and we already talked about Linda's happy ending, right? Yes. That- her Christmas, her Christmas, not Christmas tree farm, Christmas year round Christmas store. Um, and we'll get to the Christmas of it all. But, um, but you know, she wasn't close, you know, she, she did get married again, et cetera. And so, like, for me, that scene as unforgettable during Emily plays is like that even Linda Tripp, someone who has so much personal enmity towards Clinton, even a Linda Tripp might be susceptible to the Clinton gaze. And I think that that uh-huh. Uh-huh. is true. I mean, yeah, she's just that good. <laughs> you know that I mean? she's seeing him through Monica's yeah. eyes, in that and that's moment. not her. That's not to say that like Linda is motivated because she's got a crush on the president. She's mad. Yeah, she's yeah, never yeah. looked at her or something like that. It's just sort of like a moment where it's like even Linda is like, yeah, this motherfucker. It's like, you when know? you can imagine her feeling that and then being kind of disgusted by yeah. it and being like, no, 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 I got to bring this guy down. Like he can't, he can't keep getting away with this, which is. You know, her stated reason of, like, wanting to protect Monica mm-hmm. that she kind of repeats throughout the whole thing, um, as true or untrue as that may have been. Okay, so last thing. I want, I want to leave on a on a uh, Linda in her happy place, which is uh, gazing at Christmas uh, ornaments <laughs> when she and Monica go antiquing. Uh, Monica looking great in, like, a jean jacket, floral dress, 90s oh, combo. Oh, I love Monica's outfit. Great, great yeah. stuff. Um, and Linda is, is sort of ooing and aahing over a Christmas ornament. This, uh, as you mentioned, becomes... Her lifelong passion, um, Christmas, year-round Christmas store. Um, but what did you make of the, of the like, because we haven't talked a lot about the filmmaking of uh, this mm-hmm. show. We talked a lot about the writing and the performances. But, like, so this episode's um, directed by Michael Eppendahl, who is, like, a Mad Men director. Um, you know, he's on a ton of TV. Um, what did you make of the way in which this was all framed? There was something kind of, strange about it like there's something the, the music is a little bit ominous there's a lot of om- ominous music throughout the show um and she's kind of like drawn in by the red light of this little christmas pavilion inside this um antique store and her face is lit up red as she's like looking at this little christmas tree and she's like like and it's bavarian which <laughs> means something to linda does not mean anything to me <laughs> um it just felt like a little sad and a little like I don't know. It's another moment with Linda in this episode where I was like, I don't fully know. Less about not knowing what, what's going on in Christmas. In Linda's head, I think she just loves the Christmas tree. But, like, what is the show revealing to us about Linda in that moment? Other than, like, you know, she's a woman who has a soft side, which is all about Christmas uh, and is more than just this, like, you know, Pentagon worker drone. I don't know. Did it did it stick out to you the same way it did to me? Uh, I, I kind of missed it, but I, I want to go back and watch it. I Because, like, I just sort of glossed over it thinking, like, oh, it's just a moment where... 
we get to know about Linda's love for Christmas, but um, where Linda loves Christmas. But yeah. I want to I want to go back and look at it because I think it is important for us to look really closely at the way in which this show is framing Linda and the way in which this show shoots her because there is a little bit occasionally grotesquery of like the way in which like her teeth are, the way in which she eats things, like all this sort of stuff, and there is like the ongoing question of like uh bodies and diet culture and you know like monica's like starving herself so that she can look good when she sees the president again it's just like that like that's an aspect Mm -hmm. of of this episode stuff like that so um i do i do want to pay close attention to the way that the camera treats linda so i'm going to go back and look at that but if anyone else has any thoughts or feelings about linda and her and her moment with a Bavarian christmas ornament always email us still watching pot at gmail.com i'm interested to hear it did make me excite for decorating for christmas i gotta say linda's christmas fever fever is, is coming to me it's september <laughs> it's time to start thinking about it guys um <laughs> you know i think we should all treat ourselves to a Bavarian christmas ornament this year um yeah. I'm sh- well, go go find one let me know where to source i'm it. sure they are um, i will say this that like have you ever been to a place where there's like a german christmas market um probably well yeah i mean like in the i don't know if this is what you're talking about but like in union square in, in new york in the christmas they have like the big outdoor christmas market is that what we're talking yeah, about yeah there's this like little wooden structures where people are like yeah. have a mm-hmm. have a sausage have a hot chocolate have a whatever have a cider yeah. and go go peruse some knickknacks yeah, yeah yeah so there's like there's a big one in london along the thames um and that's like my happy place is the christmas market in london and it's like you... so i do associate uh like linda i do associate christmas with bavaria that's true so i think you and i should go antiquing and i uh will not record our conversations <laughs> like in this <laughs> promises moment. when we are recording our conversation promises promises all right so that's <laughs> it for episode two uh the president kissed me uh we will be back next week uh with more discussion for my last my last still watching episode katie rich oh my God. um Email us all of your thoughts and feelings about everything. Stillwashingpot.gmail.com. Richard will be back at some point, I promise you. Um, until then, Katie Rich, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me at VanityFair.com. Uh, we're on uh, the Little Gold Men podcast, uh, where Richard and some other of our colleagues are talking about the Telluride Film Festival, which is uh, extremely valuable. Or uh, you can also find me setting up my own uh, Bavarian Christmas market. Oh, my God. I can't wait to go to Katie Rich's Bavarian Christmas market. I'm Joanna Robinson. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find me for a little while longer on VF.com. And you can uh, find me hopefully walking into a room a la Ann Coulter, just like opening a bottle of wine as I enter. What a power move. Love that for me. Not the only time she does that on this series. So buckle Amazing. up. Uh, and we will see you next time.